All right, welcome back, Cutlass Leaders. Today, I want to take some time and uh, focus on the attributes of frontline leaders who lead in what we would call high reliability organizations or organizations that deal with high risk operations and processes. Uh, I think you'll see that the attributes of these leaders definitely are sturdy uh, and credibility factor into uh, their success in leading in these operations as a frontline leader. So with me today, I reached out to an old shipmate of mine, Frank Gardner. Frank now is a consultant and a project manager with the High Reliability Group. He's worked for the last two years coaching operational and maintenance teams in the field and corporate teams in high reliability. So Frank, before that, he served 33 years in the submarine force, retired in 2018 as a mass chief petty officer. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Organizational Leadership. And Frank led in the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program for five years as the Naval Reactors Command Mass Chief. He's got extensive experience in maintenance, training, as well as project and human resource management. And he conducts dozens of operational and organizational culture assessments in a variety of industrial and operational settings specializing in assisting leadership teams and implementing change to improve processes, performance, and reliability. So Frank, welcome to the Cutlass Podcast. Thanks for joining me. How are things going? Things are going great. And Paul, a uh, real honor to, to be invited on to uh, speak to you and, and to your audience. So. Yeah, thanks for the time. Again, I know, uh, I think with this operational environment now with COVID, you know, it's great to have the opportunity to get some time with you. I know you're always out and about advising teams and evaluating operations in these industries. So, all right. So we both served in the Naval Nuclear Power Program. And as we know, that program has a pretty envious safety record. Uh, the safety management system, the formal term for it, is strong, and they have a definitely strong, you know, foundation of organizational value and belief systems. So, from your experience, you know, let's talk about first. What is a high reliability organization? And then your take on what is the role of the frontline leader in the success of those operations and other high reliability organizations? So, Paul, I think two quotes kind of really set the tone for this. One is that human experience shows that people, not organizations or management systems, get things done. And that was that was um, Admiral Rickover. He was a very strong people person, although he's not portrayed that way, uh, but he truly believed that it was going to be people that built safety and really organized the entire the entire program around that thought process. Okay. For high, you know, another thought on high reliability organization is the the pursuit to operational excellence is a culture fully devoted to professional knowledge, brutal, honest self assessment, continuous improvement, and in intellectual integrity. And and that's a quote out of a book titled Extreme Operational Excellence, which was written by a couple of submariners. Uh, who I think did a great job looking at our watch standard principles, and we'll talk about those probably in a little bit. Yes. Um, how those really um, can be turned into, you know, really any setting, right? Those those watch standing principles, you know, really form the basis of a strong culture that, uh, that, that supports that. So when I think about HROs, uh, by definition, these are organizations that operate in high consequence and complex environments, so you can think nuclear power plants like we operated. Yeah. You can think hospitals, you know, and just think about what they're going on now with all the extra complexity of, of a pandemic and, and, and trying to stay safe. And, and yet organizations like that are high reliability, considered high reliable, do this work safely, effectively, and, and really profitably. Okay. And, um, uh, you know, from my experience too, you know, you got construction companies and then I think most military operations could be considered high reliability operations. Oh yeah. Um, there was a book 
that uh, was written on high reliability, and one of the areas they focused on was uh, operations of a of an aircraft carrier flight deck, which I know you have more experience with than I do. But uh, you know, but still looking at why is that successful? Why you know, in such a dangerous environment, we do it safely and we get airplanes off off the deck and and accomplish our mission. And it's the same same thing here and really a lot of that's done right the success of that is is an obsession with um how work is done in the organization right so there are actions that are deliberately taken to make sure the right people so that you know that's skills and experience and knowledge that we have procedures that work right and that we have engaged supervision that's knowledgeable and that's in place for each operation and maintenance action you know and it was a risk-based decision now, I'll talk a little bit more about leadership later, uh, you know, the idea of sampling and, you know, do you know where which one of these operations needs your personal leadership now? Okay. That's key to, to leadership in, a, in an HRO. And HROs themselves, kind of four big elements, right? Management systems, which you mentioned kind of in your question, you know, in your opening, leadership, culture, and feedback loops. Um, and all, all organizations have those four big elements. Okay. All organize, all organizations suffer from the same problems. Humans and, and teams of humans make mistakes. All safeguards are degrading and the safeguards could be like physical safeguards, like a relief valve or the engineered safety system on a reactor or whatever it may be. Right. Right. As soon as they're installed, they're starting to fall apart. And yep. so you've got to do work to keep them. And then all management systems are imperfect. Or, or have weaknesses. Even the management systems that we used in nuclear power had their deficiencies. I mean, if you remember, you know, when I think about our procedures for operating the plant, I mean, we were on Rev 2000. So we had found ways to improve it and found weaknesses that uh, that we fixed and, and, and kept moving on. And all organizations also suffer the same enemies of success, and that's complacency, ignorance and arrogance and then you got to ask yourself well why do some why do some of these organizations rise above all of this chaos and they're successful and you know i think the one the one common trait of hros is that they focus leaders on finding and fixing problems before the problems find them right organizations that aren't out there proactively looking for that are the ones that get hit um and didn't see it coming so the weaknesses you mentioned or the enemies, where do you see that? Is that at the strategic level Is that you know, or executive level or do you see it at the frontline uh, leader level more, mostly or is it equally distributed? It's actually pretty equally dis- distributed. So complacency at, a, at an individual level is, you know, I come to work every day. I'm not really looking for problems. I'm just I've been told to record these readings on a piece of paper. I do that. And, you know, I don't know what happens to them. And, and I don't really go back to do trend analysis to see if there's any problems with the equipment. Right. Um, and then at an organizational level, it's, yep, all of our folks are out there doing great, uh, but we never go back to measure um, their performance or their knowledge. Uh, and this is that's a big problem I see in oil in the oil and gas industry you know, is a is a complacency. And it's really in the face of what are some pretty big problems. Um, ignorance is another one, too, that goes along with that. That it's I see that at an organizational level where we don't have systems in place that allow us to see and own the problems that are out there, right? We don't have the feedback loops. Yep. This podcast primarily focuses on, you know, towards the frontline leader, not that more executive strategic leaders uh, can't get value out of this. But, 
you know, whether it's a military leader leading that, you know, cross services, I'd, I'd consider that, you know, probably the E5 to E7 pay grade or, yeah. you know, a team leader out in the, uh, you know, I, I don't know what they're called out there, but this frontline leadership, the guys supervising that day-to-day op, what's their role in combating these enemies and ensuring operational success? So I see it, one, leadership, when we talk about HROs, um, this is where I, I spend my time focused. It was around kind of four big areas, and that's engagement, communications, responsibility, and, and accountability. And, it, and it's really about, you know, kind of back to my Rick Over quote, you know, out there investing in people first. So, you know, we've put leaders out, out in place that actually have knowledge of the systems, and that they're they're training their reliefs. And if you think about our, our Navy days, I mean, that's what the world looked like. Yep. Uh, you know, from that perspective. And I really think it's it's high, the high reliability organizations recognize that it's the operators and the maintainers and the supervisors making observations with a purpose. And when I talk about observations with a purpose, think audit and surveillance programs, right? Yep. Um, site. And, uh, you know, walking around the engine room or walking through the spaces and taking somebody with you, teaching them what to go look for. Right. And that is to me, that's the importance of frontline leadership. Right. They're the keeper of the standards. Right. What right looks like. And I also believe that our leaders are the embodiment. You know, the team sees them as the embodiment of the company. And so the leader's behavior, their attitudes directly impact the team's connection and loyalty to the organization. And that's going to drive, you know, those watch standing behaviors we mentioned before, like questioning attitude and forceful backup and integrity and, and, uh, right. Cause those are all built on trust yep. that I'm, I'm safe to speak up. And, you know, so that's a, that's a big piece of it right there. I think the other one that really stands out for me is that frontline leaders are critical to driving continuous improvement. Organizational change in this initiatives, they either flourish. Uh, because they're supported by these frontline leaders and they're driven into home, right? Especially for trying to drive some sort of a culture change yeah. or they don't believe and they die at this level. And so we could have all these great campaigns out there to, to do something different. It may be in safety. It could be in, um, in organizational performance, but without frontline leader buy-in and action, they're just not going to live. Okay, yeah, and I think you know, kind of the attributes that I highlight on at least on the cutlass leader approach is this concept of being a sturdy, versatile, incredible leader. Those all link with these frontline leader attributes. When I look at sturdy, I'm like someone who leads in a firm but fair way, knows the standards, can keep them, can enforce them without uh, with the right approach, right? Without alienating your audience and driving a bad attitude. Uh, they got to be credible, so they got to have high expert power. They got to have high personal power, so they got to know what they're doing, and they got to lead in a way that's got a positive attitude that embodies the value and belief system of the organization, and they understand that. And then versatile as well. So once again, you know, source for driving cultural knowledge, for lessons learned, for continuous learning. That's a versatile leader, as far as I'm concerned. So back in nuclear power, as a, you know, I go back to being a young second class petty officer. There's a maturity to this as well, right? Because, you know, I could lead some operations or lead some teams, but there was times when, you know, maybe I didn't understand, you know, why we did the value and belief systems, why we did the processes we did. Um, so I didn't necessarily deliver it probably with the credibility and the, and the kind of really buy-in that I should have. Do you see that on the front line and how do you help, uh, you know, coach teams and frontline leaders to make sure their attitude represents the value and belief system? 
Well, you know, a lot of that. So most of the leadership coaching, um, and it doesn't look that much different than when I was a chief petty officer, it's a contact sport, right? So yep. you're, you're there with them. And a lot of times it's reflecting back, Hey, this is what you said. And, you know, and I talked to a few of the folks that work for you and this is what they heard. You know, so it's, it's helping to make that connection, you know, in many cases where that connection doesn't exist. Yep. Uh, and so some, so reflecting back some of that just to say, okay, is that what you really wanted to sound like? Is that what you wanted to say? And, and no, and then giving them some really specific feedback. Let's try this. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it, there's a lot of, it's a lot of in the field, uh, with leaders. I spent a lot of time in pickup trucks in oil fields. Right. Uh, but you get hours of um, captive audience to really start to talk about, well, you know, what would good look like if you want to get this done? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So as a, you know, middle manager, like, like you said, a chief petty officer, I guess a foreman level out there in the civilian world, you know, that's, that's a key part of this of developing or what we would call training your reliefs, right? So it's identifying, selecting people with the potential to lead and delegate decision-making power to, but then there's a, you know, once you've got them out there, you got to come behind and coach, right? And you got to watch them deliver and provide that kind of feedback. I, I think, uh, you know, I got great technical training and, uh, I, I think that could have helped, right? As a as a younger leader, to have someone come behind and watch me deliver messages to my team, and then give me feedback on my attitude and how that you know how my attitude was either doing good or bad for helping deliver the message and ingrain the attributes we wanted. Well, it's a big it's a big missing link uh, that I've seen in the commercial world is, and and so a lot of conversations with kind of the mid level management is, you know, we start off with the question of. Do your people know what your expectations are? Right. And, and, and of course, the answer is, well, of course they do. Well, I said, let's go out and let's go out in the field and see. You know, let's go put eyes on target. You know, it doesn't take more than a couple of weeks of driving around, talking to people, watching work happen. And in many cases, it's the first time they've done it in a long time for them to realize, well, maybe maybe we haven't clearly communicated expectations. Yeah. And one thing I think is huge important, right? It's not just the expectations, but connecting, like we talked about, that deck plate leader or that frontline worker with the objective, the mission. And then also, another, I think another thing that the frontline leader and the mid-level manager do is they help educate and communicate outcomes, right? So Here's the positive outcome, right? Here's what right looks like. But if we don't do it right, here's how bad it could be, right? So as a leader in a leadership position, you've got to understand that's why we trained in nuclear power so much on Chernobyl and Three Mile Island and all these bad outcomes, right? And then we saw it play out in reality in Fukushima, right? Um, you know, I, I was amazed going, man, that is exactly what we were trained to avoid. And here it is playing out. So I think that's huge uh, part of, of the kind of learning development of an yeah, organization. Yeah. And, you know, you'll see that it's that frontline leadership being engaged is a big key driving organizational resilience, right? This idea that uh, we can take a punch and keep on moving. We can absorb the mistake by an individual or the team of individuals or the degrading safeguards uh, or the weak management system and still be successful and safe. You know, and that's the key to high reliability. Um, and it, it really hinges on leadership. All right. Uh, so let's move on to, uh, you know, speaking of value and belief systems, you know, so one thing that uh, I'm telling you, this, this concept of watch standing principles, and you mentioned it earlier in the intro, it didn't just, you know, have value in Naval Nuclear Power Program. I found myself taking these core watch standing principles 
um, procedural compliance, formality, having a questioning attitude, having ownership, you know, watch team backup, having high level of knowledge, you know, integrity, these kind of concepts. As command mass chief, you know, when I escaped or left the Naval Nuclear Power Program, <laughs> man, I found myself just putting everything into those terms, right? It didn't have to be an a high reliability operation. It could have just been how we communicate to the command, how we just do day-to-day business. But this questioning attitude of, hey, let's look at how we do processes. You know, my commanding officers and commanders I always appreciated that I could bring that uh, perspective in. So let's talk about these uh, watchstanding principles and how do you translate that to, you know, the, the civilian sector? Well, the good thing is, is that when we're talking about the watchstanding principles, a lot of what we're talking about are behaviors. You know, my old age, I've kind of simplified them down to uh, learning and knowledge, formality, questioning attitude, team backup or forceful backup. It kind of depends. Yeah. And I'll talk about the difference in the commercial world than, than ours. Okay. Um, and, uh, and integrity, right? So, so the kind of those basis ones, they're still, still there. And it, I combine a couple of the ones, you know, that we grew up with. I honestly took it for granted. Yeah. Um, you know, and then when I went out, you know, my eyes got, got opened up quite a bit when I started to look out in the, in the rest of the world and go, Holy mackerel. Yeah. You know, isn't that amazing uh, how you're in a high reliability organization where these things are the culturally ingrained? And then I'm telling you, even when I went to my first command mass chief on the USS Juno, you know, conventional power plant, I went down there and I was like, whoa, um, you take it for granted. It, it is. It is. And, and the reason I feel that we were successful is because from day one, you were ingrained in it when you got into the into the nuclear power program and then it wasn't just leaders right this was peer-to-peer accountability right right this was you were expected to operate this way and if you didn't you were you were going to get trained you know in a a variety of ways people weren't going to accept um less than your best uh you know so so when we kind of think about those behaviors um i'll start with learning and knowledge and the reason i always start with this one when 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 i get asked this question is because I think it's the basis for all of the other principles and behaviors. Okay. You know, so, and I'll use the example, how can I have a questioning attitude if I don't know what right looks like, right? You know, how can I walk in and provide team backup? So by my fifth submarine, um, I was 25 years older, at least, than than the, the young men that were working for me. Um, but I still needed them to come up and stop me from making a mistake. Right. Um, so in order to do, to have that kind of confidence, they needed to know what they were talking about. Right. So what we're really trying to do in, in learning and knowledge at an individual level is build the competence and the confidence to the, yes, I know what right looks like, um, to really understand the principles and physics behind how things work. And what I've seen between, uh, and this is, this is the principle that has set the bar between, where we worked in, in naval nuclear propulsion and all of the other process industries that are out there. So think chemical, oil and gas is this piece because this principle is not driven home into, into the operators in those fields with the same vigor and the amount of effort that we put into it. And then at an organizational level, uh, you know, that idea of learning and knowledge is all about driving organizational humility. You know, this idea of let's go find our problems um, yep. and continuous improvement. Right. And it's really developing systems that allow us to see, own, either solve challenges or exploit opportunities are out there. And if we can't see it, 
uh, you know, we're going to miss that stuff and we get, and you get surprised and surprises in that world aren't good in the high reliability world or in the complex or, or, uh, high consequence type industries. Um, you know, another one formality, it relies a lot on competence. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about formality, I'm talking about, um, procedural compliance, uh, you know, do we have procedures? The commercial world doesn't have as many procedures as say the, you know, we did in nuclear power. Okay. And they're probably more risk-based, but there's also the general trend is, well, we have all of these tradesmen and tradespersons and, uh, you know, professionals working for us. We don't need procedures, right? We don't need all of this detailed overhead. We just send them out to go do the work. They're professionals. And, and, you know, you think about it. If a plumber comes into your house, you don't really expect to see him use a procedure to fix. You're relying on some sort of trade, uh, um, trade knowledge right. and trade skill, you know, it, but, but there's really an over-reliance on that and an underestimation on what people know. Okay. Uh, so, so it, it's, that's usually one of the, one of the pieces that we have to work really hard in the commercial world on, um, that I, again, took for granted in our nuclear power, you know, history. The other, you know, formality of communications and, and, and that's really all about, do I ensure that others understand what I said, whether it's communicating expectations or giving orders? This is another kind of that formality of communication is a, is a foreign concept in a lot of the, a lot of the outside world. Yeah. It's, you know, like I mentioned that, that concept of being a sturdy leader to me, that's, you know, hey, I'm, you know, when we're on the job dealing with these high risk, high cost of outcome operations, it's like, I'm not kind of requesting this. I got to be more directive in nature and it's okay to be a firm but fair leader giving orders or giving direction at these times. Yep. And yep. I think some people want to shy away from that. You know, this, it's this, no, it's definitely that. Um, and some cultures that I've witnessed, it's even harder for it to hold people accountable, to hold standards, to communicate and enforce those, those types of things. Um, and just, just because of the way people interact, yeah. you yeah. know, uh, and, and so, you know, that's something we have to consider when we're out coaching yeah. is what's the culture. Yeah. Do you see this, you know, the difference between a leader who wants to be respected and liked, right? So if I'm a leader that wants to be respected, I'm going to lead in this firm, but fair way. I I'm confident in my decision-making. I'm open to team input, but once I hear it, I'm going to make a firm decision and we're going to move. Vice the leader that wants to be liked. Do you see this difference in approach? Oh, yeah. Well, the leader that wants to be liked knows things are wrong, but won't act on their values. Right. right? And people people perceive that, right, as, as inauthentic action. And so the whole time I want to be liked, people are like, I don't know, this guy is he's weak. Yeah. I, I don't think he has my back if I get into trouble. What you really want are authentic leaders that are out there living their values in their work. Yes. Um, and then the, the firm and fair is really, to me, about maturity and consistency, because if we don't have consistency in how we enforce standards, if we're nice to some or nice in some situations, all it does is produce anxiety. In the yeah. team, right. And that that bust trust and trust is the basis. You know, when we start talking about questioning attitude and, and backup. It's it is a big thing. You know, the other thing I wanted to mention about formality um, before I forget is the frontline leaders need process formality. They need strong management systems to back them up. Right. Because that's really how you're setting the organizational standards that we're going to follow. Yep. Right. So, you know, if, if we say, hey, we believe in safety and we believe in procedural compliance, 
then let's make systems that um, we can we can consistently enforce, right? And and easily enforce. And so that's and and when I talk about process formality, what I really mean is that you know the procedures we give folks and the processes they're documented, they're right, technically right. Um, they're understood in practice. They have clear accountabilities. Who's in charge? Who's responsible to get this done? Um, what happens if it doesn't get done? How do we how do we fix it? Um, they have defined and documented competencies, right? And and demonstrated competencies. We go out and measure it. And the other one is, is that they are verified. So we have self-assessment and self-assurance programs, right? We have audits. We've got, um, you know, so it's that's something many clients um, in my in my work now we have to come back and fix yeah i think this is uh, again back to selecting leaders um so part of this is for a younger leader you know a younger petty officer or a sergeant what have you a person out in the field this is part of that growing into the role right and kind of taking this advice we're giving you and really going out reflecting on what you're doing but for people selecting leaders that's why it's you could have a knowledgeable leader hey they're technically sound but you got to have that evaluate that personal power base too, right? Have they bought oh, yeah. in to the the value and belief system? And Frank, I'll go back to my time as a young leader, right? That's what took me longer, right? To buy into the value and belief system. Yeah, you know, I had technical knowledge, I knew my stuff, I stayed up on it. As you know, we trained extensively, and I did a lot right. of self learning too, right? It wasn't just relying on the organization to train me. I was in tech manuals, I was in reactor plant manuals, reading and learning more, and having discussions with peers. But for me, what lagged was, you know, that buy-in and understanding organizational value and belief system. And I think we got to train and educate our teams more on that. You know, a lot of it is how we select leaders. And, and the, interestingly, the same kind of habits I've seen in when, when we were in the military exist out in the commercial world, too, where the person that gets promoted to frontline leader was the best technician. Yep. But without really giving them support him or her support on how do you be a good leader? Yeah. Right. And so, you know, there, I think if you go back to remember our old training, uh, the guys, this was back in the nineties, we used to talk about leadership styles. You know, those are the pace setters. They're the look at me. They're the ones out in front getting the work done. Yep. And yeah, they get recognized and promoted, but what we don't measure is character. Yes. We don't measure how they interact with folks. We don't measure, um, and 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 there's a lot of variability because people grow up with different beliefs and value systems. How do we normalize those beliefs and value systems and ingrain what the organization needs? Um, and that was the power of of uh, our chief petty officer initiation season, right? Is it, that's really the first run over the target yeah. to get that right. And then another one is this questioning attitude and forceful backup, right? This is that being able to be a versatile kind of leader that holds standards. When I think about questioning attitude, right, it's a, a willingness to challenge assumptions, um, question what we know or don't know, investigate anomalies, and uh, and then consider the potential adverse consequences of planned actions. You know, so we don't walk past problems. We don't live with problems. You know, and that's, and that's how we grew up in nuclear power. This takes a while to build in a team. Yeah. Um, and, and it really takes an organization that one values self-learning and uh, self-assessment. So, you know, they're driving that. And then it takes consistent, mature leadership because people aren't going to speak up. Right. You know, in the, in the idea of forceful backup, if they think as soon as I bring up an issue, I'm going to get yelled at or I'm going to get fired. Right. So if they're not psychologically safe in the in the work environment, 
um, they're not going to speak up and they're not really driven to go and solve problems in the organization. They're just trying to survive day to day. Yeah, this is the concept. It blends in with some of the risk management. You know, there's cultures out there, but adjust culture. People know the standard, what right looks like, but we know that people will make mistakes. And as long as that mistake is not intentional or done in a bad way with, with bad intent, yeah. you apply the discipline from there, right? And this, not all discipline is punishment, right? You know, it could be yeah. training and things like that, but how you apply that, uh, I think is important too. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. You got to create those conditions where people can speak up and provide you that, that feedback yeah. or it's not going to work. Well, and you're really talking about, you know, kind of that positive accountability connection where, yeah, I know when we make mistakes, we're going to have, you know, there are accountabilities. We're going to have to go fix a mistake and, you know, we're going to figure out how, what we did wrong, but it's not about blaming the individual. Let's figure out how the system let, you know, how they were led and supported and let's go. And that's where true organizational learning, right? Yeah. That goes back to that, I, that idea. I would also say that when we think about questioning attitude, that was really the foundation of our risk management process in nuclear power. Yes. And I think it is foundation of risk management in general across the, any industry is that, you know, can we prove to ourselves that we're safe, we understand the risks and that we have mitigations in place? And you really need frontline leaders who understand that piece of it, right? Understand risk management, understand process safety. And then can ask the right questions. They put themselves in the right place. Yep. And uh, once yeah. again, this can be process improvement as well, right? It just doesn't have to be an operation, but you can come in with a questioning attitude. Yeah. You know, once again, I would come in, you know, I was naval nuclear power, but then I, you know, went into amphibious community. I went into aviation. I went into installation management. I obviously in some areas I didn't have, you know, expertise in those, but I could go in and go, okay. Why do we do this? Right. And just ask it from a very unlearned perspective. And in many cases, you would find people going, well, why do we do this? You know, um, so this questioning attitude is important and does you well across many lines of effort. Yeah. And, it, you know, that kind of, you know, asking what might be the dumb question has, you know, really served me well in my coaching in oil and gas. Absolutely. So what's the importance of the last one? Integrity, right? That was, I mean, if there was a word that I left nuclear power with, it was this concept of integrity. How is that uh, perceived you know, or how do you inculcate that outside of naval nuclear power uh, and what's its importance? Really, for me, integrity, uh, I think the simplest definition, right, is the, is the alignment between values, beliefs, attitudes and behaviors, right? All of those those have to be um, lined up and it's really leader behavior that shapes that culture, yeah. right? We own the character of our organizations and, and it's people. So, you know, how the organization behaves, you know, are there say do mismatches? Do we say safety's our number one, but the reality is we're okay with spilling some oil out in the, right. out in the water or in the, on the land. Um, and, and we're the folks that work for us see that mismatch um, you know, we lose credibility as, as leaders. And, and, um, and sometimes there are even unintentional behaviors that create a habit of deceit. And that's really about, do we know the conditions that our people are working in? Right? And do we understand the cost of what we ask for yep. and the cost, you know, in time in uh, you know, so if I'm driving my folks crazy with, with uh, requests for PowerPoints and, and useless reports, they're not focused on the stuff we need them to focus on, on safety and that type of thing. Right. You know, yep. so it's, that's a, it, that's, 
it is, um, you know, this idea of, of in unintentional and intentional behaviors that, that can create a habit of deceit. And, you know, we've seen that in a lot of places where, um, you know, whether it was in our program or in the broader Navy or I've seen it in the commercial world where, you know, we'll, uh, you know, we'll assign a job at two o'clock in the afternoon. It's an eight hour job. Our folks come up to us at six o'clock in the afternoon and say, Hey, we're done. You know, I've got two choices. Well, let's go back. Let's see how you got this eight hour job done in four hours. Um, or I do the, Oh, great. Let's all go home. You know, without, without asking any questions. And, and once I do that, I've, I've now started that, you know, to instill that habit of deceit. It's okay to lie to me. Tell me the rosy sunshine reporting piece of this. Um, and then, uh, you know, the other one is we have to make sure that we don't put loyalties in conflict. Um, if you think back to, I don't know if you remember the, uh, the big cheating event we had in nuclear power at our training commands. Yeah. I wrote about an um, article on that actually. Oh yeah. No, I do remember that. Yeah. yeah. That was, there was a lot of loyalties in conflict. Yes. Right. Individually and also organizationally, we were driving folks in the wrong direction. Um, you, you know, with predictable results, uh, people, people wanted to look out for themselves. And, and so, you know, all of, I think all of these things, you know, that, Culture is the end result of leadership. And if you've got a strong culture that's aligned with, you know, the principles that we're talking about here, the organization is more resilient because we're catching mistakes before they happen. We're finding problems before they find us. We've got folks that believe and are engaged in the work. And really this idea of culture, this, this just becomes the way we do work around here, right? This is, this is how things are done. And, yep. and once you get to that point, you're, you're a lot closer to, to high reliability. Yep. And then people have, you know, you got the organizational value and belief system, whether it's your core values or the Watson principles we talked about. Those are really just words unless you can get, we all come into an organization with our own personal value and belief system, right? They're not necessarily aligned, right? So if those are misaligned or, hey, my value and belief system is more important. So my attitude towards this or that is different than what the organization expects. Once again, that's going to make you not a strong leader, not a credible leader. And you may think it's cool, but actually it's not. And you're just putting your people and process at risk. That is um, probably an area um, that I've I've seen the most work have to be done in the commercial world is um, this idea of how do I spend time aligning leaders with the organizational values? And can they explain the principles that we work behind to their folks in a convincing, believable, authentic way? Yeah. Right. Do they believe? And, you know, because if you don't believe it comes through, you know, people are smart. They work for us. Okay. Uh, One thing I like to do is kind of put these into situational context. So we discussed about how to get to right, how a frontline leader can get right. So let's talk about how things can go wrong. So what things have you seen out there? What's a situation where you saw some kind of high reliability operation go wrong and how the frontline leader failed to effectively manage those operations or perhaps could have used watch standing principles to prevent it. Yeah. So one, of, I think the one that really sticks out in my mind, and it's one that kept me awake after I, after I heard about it, um, cause it had happened before I, I came into this area to coach. Um, this is in the oil and gas industry. The, um, the scene is a remote gas compressor station and, 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 you know, the, the physics behind it are that you need to have a basically, Oil and gas come out from the ground under pressure, especially where they do fracking. Um, 
usually the processing plants are in a central location, but you got to have a compressor to to move that gas, you know, repressurize it and move it. And they're usually pretty simple. They're big diesel driven, um, positive displacement compressors, um, big pistons. And, uh, you know, uh, and then there's a large inlet separator, you know, think about, it's about the size of two rail cars. Okay. Um, and the, and the idea is to keep the liquid out of the suction of the compressor. Um, but what you want to do is keep enough liquid in that inlet separator um, because connected to the inlet separator is a tank where we, we collect the water and what they call um, flammable condensates. So they go like propane, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so they collect that, and there's money in that world too, right? But you can't, you don't want to, the, those tanks, the produced liquid tanks are usually vented to atmosphere, right? And they were in this plant. Um, so for this plant, the operators had a long-standing problem. Think back to living with deficiencies, right? That we yep. talked about, um, and this was with the their level detecting and the control system on the separator, and they had a lot of unidentified material, right? So back to well, we, we don't really know what our problem is, um, and it would clog up this detector, and uh, they would have to turn it off, basically isolate the detector, um, shut it, so shut its valves, and then drain it down and and clear it out and then put it back in operation. And they were doing this um, before their incident happened three or four times a day, right? So there was a lot of interaction. Now, the other downside to this is there wasn't a procedure for this, right? Uh, If you remember back in our uh, Navy days, we had things like temporary standing orders that we would write to uh, give operators how to, how do you handle an abnormal situation, right? You know, this didn't exist. So, you know, the operators, handed down their solution by word of mouth. This kind of informal resolution. Uh, tribal knowledge is another thing you might hear it called. And they also, um, they didn't have a formal mesh- method to get permission to uh, do this work, to do to, to do this. They did it on their own. Um, and, and so for several months, they were successful. Until one day, uh, you know, an operator was doing this, was trying to make the, the level detection and control system work. Um, got interrupted, forgot that he uh, left the valve shut. Um, then he left the station for the day because it was unmanned at night. Mm. Um, there was a remote monitoring station, you know, at the processing plant that yep. could see some stuff, but not everything. And, okay. and really then the physics of the situation take over, right? The, the, that separator had a big dump valve on it. Um, that fails open. Hmm. And now we're blowing natural gas into this tank that's been in the atmosphere and, uh, you know, that went on all night. They put several thousand feet of gas, yeah. uh, cubic feet of gas in a cloud above the plant, uh, you know, as, as wow. a result of that. The interesting thing in that is that the company actually had a policy that, you know, if you bypassed a critical safety, um, you had to get permission and you had certain things you had to do to keep track of it, right? The key was the operators didn't know this was a safety. Wow. They yep. didn't understand that they were bypassing a safety that did that. Now, um, in the end, it didn't blow up, right? And and they were lucky because a tank truck operator came to empty that produced water tank, and he heard a weird sound. So good questioning attitude um, and and um, some team backup. He calls the plant operator at home and says, hey, this sounds weird. The operator remembering, like, oh, you know, then he has that moment of clarity, like I left all those valves shut. Um, and he tells the driver to get off the site and get his truck off the site because 
the diesel, the heat from the diesel engine could have easily ignited the gas cloud. We, they were lucky. Yeah. And it really came down to the grace of God and, and prevailing winds yeah. over the site that kept the explosion. Yeah. But it was this, you know, it was this idea we didn't know. And they didn't, they had a competency system that was based on procedures. But since they didn't have a procedure for this, we didn't build knowledge and we didn't test it. You know, um, yep. the other piece was, is the supervisors only came out to the site every once in a while. And when they did, they would go to their office, do some paperwork, talk to people, but they wouldn't go tour around the site and ask questions. Right. And, and that's what you need are leaders going out to look at the gap between work as imagined and then the real, the realities of the work in the field. And since they weren't going out to ask those questions, they didn't see the problems the operators were dealing with. Okay. Yeah. That's, and, uh, yeah, it's that Swiss, you know, Swiss cheese model that all these layers of safety ultimately, Hey, watch standing principles kicked into play. And that was one thing, you know, that yeah. probably stopped this thing. Yeah. Well, think about it. We left this guy as a single point failure, the operator, right? Yeah. He made a mistake. Yep. People make mistakes. And because we didn't have that formality of operations and procedures, we, we didn't deal with broken things. We didn't make sure we had some sort of a temporary procedure in place. Um, and then we didn't, you know, so there wasn't a formal method to adjudicate those, those problems. The operator was left on his own yep. um, to deal with the problem. And, and guess what? If you're a single point failure, you're not a very resilient organization. Right. Uh, so what was the organizational response to that? Honestly, it was weak, you know, and it wasn't until I got in there as a, and started to coach that team asking more about this question. And, and so, you know, I will do we'll do some workshops where we talk about this kind of leadership. And and I would just tee up those types of events as case studies. Well, let's talk about what would Rob look like. Right. Uh, and and so eventually we got to the point of because there was also a design problem with that tank in the process industry world. The standard is you don't put the level detecting system on the same piping isolations from the tank as the level control system, as the yep. safety system. You separate those out so that you have more redundancy. But, you know, they just didn't do that. And, and then there were several there were several more incidents that happened in that company. Um, a lot of that are the things I'm working with them now on building management systems like the incident management, that type of thing. And, okay. and this goes back to we've got to give frontline leaders a, a chance to win in, in order to make sure that, you know, so this is strong management systems in order to make sure that they, they, they can deal with these problems. They can see the problems. We share lessons across organizations. If you don't have that, there's not a fighting chance, Okay, you know, at that world. So, All right. Well, I think that's a good point to segue into closing out. Any last thoughts uh, you want to offer, points of emphasis, and then uh, what kind of recommended resources, kind of books, articles, or podcasts would you recommend uh, yeah. for frontline leaders or others on this topic? A couple, just a couple of thoughts. One, this idea of authenticity and community connection. Uh, so, you know, authentic speech and actions on leaders. So, no say do mismatch. Don't don't sugarcoat challenges, um, and be honest and have a good plan, right? Because that's one of the things we owe folks along with an appreciation for why we do the things we do. And, and then on the community connection side, it's about knowing people, you know, their families, their current situations, you know, at home and their challenges. So that way we, we understand their strengths and weaknesses and we can put them in the right places 
um, or I can put leadership in the right place. Um, and it's about building trust with them. Ultimately, you know, all the stuff we talked about in a high reliability organization, right? These watchstanding principles, HRO principles, um, are the basis of lasting excellence. Um, and most of what we've talked about isn't a fancy management technique and you don't need special skills to do it. What's required really is a strong commitment just to lift where you stand, right? Yeah. Make the, make your organization better, make the lives of your people better and just recognize there isn't a higher honor in, in your professional life than leading a team in the pursuit of excellence. Um, that's, that's kind of, that's where, um, where I settle out on is, you know, it's that personal commitment. Um, as far as books go, you know, I mentioned, uh, the extreme operational excellence, and this is applying the nuclear U S nuclear submarine culture to your organization. Okay. That was written by, um, Robert Kuntz and Matt DiGeronimo. Um, both were submariners. Uh, Bob was a CEO on uh, Key West at one point, And then, uh, Matt was an engineer on a, on a submarine. Um, and they really do a great job of connecting the the principles we talked about into the into the commercial world. Okay, right. And, and a bunch of it's a great read. Um, and then uh, you know a couple other books that really stick out in my mind: Stephen Spear, the uh, High Velocity Edge. You know, and it was it's his quote that you know these high velocity organizations have a frequent, serious, and disciplined approach to dealing with problems and issues. You know, and, and so uh, that's a great book. And there's a whole chapter in there on naval nuclear propulsion. Um, the last one uh, is a good place to start for this idea of just culture and psychological safety is Leaders Eat Last. Okay. Right. And that's yeah, written by Simon that Sinek. Right. You know, and there's there's a ton of other books you could go read. Those are kind of the three that stick in my mind right now. Okay. And the Chief Petty Officer's Guide, you know, for that audience, you know, chapter four, I built in this whole concept of technical management skill gets into, you know, the process of management, but it gets into some of the things we talked about. And then in chapter seven, I put in a, a section on leading teams and watch standing fundamentals, which covers, you know, watch standing principles, planning, briefing, debriefing, all that, the importance of that and developing a learning culture in your organization. So, all right, Frank, thanks again. My guest today has been Frank Gardner. Uh, thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's been it's been awesome. And to the audience, thanks again for listening to the Cutlass Podcast. If you want to learn more about the topic we discussed today or in other episodes, again, check out the Chief Petty Officer's Guide or other resources listed in the episode description, like the books and things we referenced. Uh, if you want to provide me feedback or suggest topics for future episodes, please email me at cutlassleadership at gmail.com. I'm Paul Kingsbury. Keep working hard to keep your leadership cutlass sharp. Reflect and improve, then take what you learn to go be a sturdy, versatile, incredible leader who makes a positive difference.